Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new Christmas series from Dr. Newfeld called A Vision for Christmas. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 1, verse 1, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Introduction to Isaiah's Vision of Christmas. I know, I know, it's a really long book. It's 66 chapters long. And I also know that if you've read it or attempted to read it, you can forgive the Ethiopian eunuch. You might remember that Philip the Evangelist approached his chariot while he was reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian official said, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Or how can I unless someone guides me? So he was curious about what he was reading, but he was lost as to its meaning. Who is the prophet speaking about, he asks. Is it about himself or is it about someone else? I'm lost. Well, no, those are good questions, but there are more. What were Isaiah's times? He seems to mention a good number of kings. I mean, who were they? There seems to be an unfolding drama, one in which very dark clouds are rolling in. But what's that all about? And then he talks about the explosion of hope. Did something magnificent in the past happen, or is it still promised that it will happen in the future? See, a great many Christians have favorite verses from Isaiah, but the wider context, what those verses refer to, well, that remains a mystery. And then, of course, there's always the, well, that's in the Old Testament line. It can't be that important for Christians after all. We we have the New Testament. So let's start with that, shall we? There are numerous estimates about how many times the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, but most likely the New Testament quotes the Old Testament over 850 times. The reason it's very difficult to come up with the exact number is that ancient books like our New Testament doesn't have footnotes. And so sometimes it's clear to see that there are quotes, and at other times there are allusions to the Old Testament, and still other times there are possible allusions. But suffice it to say that the entire New Testament is simply chock full of Old Testament quotes. I like to say the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. Now that Jesus has come, we now have the key to understanding the Old Testament. And so the New Testament goes through the Old Testament in detail, explaining its true meaning. And it's for that reason that I don't like the title Old Testament. I prefer the title First Testament. When we say old, many of us have the feeling that the first 39 books in our Bible are outdated. Like when we talk about that old car or that old refrigerator, that old computer, that old worn out set of ideas. You know, old for many of us means no longer relevant. And truth be told, a great many of us think about Christmas as the time when we finally went away from that old religion to the new religion of Jesus. But given that what we find in the first 27 books of our Bible, it's simply not true. What we really have is the First Testament or the groundwork, the foundation upon which everything else is built. But like the Ethiopian eunuch, we say, I mean, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? And then along came Jesus and he explained it to us, but he did more. He brought the First Testament to its completion, to its fulfillment. He shows us that all along he was the subject of the first 39 books of the Bible. And so if you ignore the First Testament, you'll never understand Jesus. It's really that simple. And that brings us back to the New Testament with its hundreds and hundreds of quotations from the First Testament. 
You know, of all the books that are quoted, the New Testament quotes from Isaiah more than from any other book. Indeed, it quotes from Isaiah more than twice as often as from any other First Testament prophet. Indeed, 15 of the 27 books of the New Testament quote from Isaiah. All four gospel accounts quote from it frequently. Paul quotes from it 20 times in the book of Romans. It just goes on and on. It seems like the book of Isaiah may well have been the favorite First Testament book in the early church. I've said it before, but if you only know a few First Testament books well, well, they should be Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and a number of the Psalms. They are key to understanding the rest. But Isaiah, well, that book is most important. Well, that's quite something to say. Yet, Isaiah seems so hard to understand. But Christmas and Isaiah, ah, that's the key. In this Christmas series, I will do a study of Isaiah chapters 6 to 11. And that's because those chapters really do help us understand the importance of the birth of Christ. Indeed, let me say that without Isaiah, I don't think we can understand Christmas well. Well, then where do we start? Let's start with the man himself. Who who was this man, Isaiah? And here, despite the importance of this book, we actually don't know a great deal about the man himself. The first verse of the book says that he was the son of Amos, but even here, we don't know anything about Amos. There is a rabbinic tradition that says that Amos was the brother of Amaziah, the king of Judah. And if that's right, Isaiah was a member of the royal family, which might explain why he had such easy access to kings and royalty. But even here, we can't be certain. Here's what we know with certainty. We know that his name means the Lord saves. And that in itself will tell us a great deal about both the man and his message. See, Isaiah taught and believed that his nation, that is, the people of Judah, indeed, all people needed to be saved by the Lord. That is, his nation was hopeless. They were doomed. They had no means of solving their own problems. They needed the Lord to save them. And as we will connect the message of Isaiah to the coming of Jesus, we will notice that at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew states, and here I'm reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, as it records words that were said to Joseph. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, according to the New Testament, all human beings are lost in sin and are helpless to save themselves. And yet in marvelous mercy, God sent his son Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. Now, if you were to ask Isaiah, he would say, yeah, I know what you're talking about. See, Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Like helpless sheep, we can't find our way home. We can't defend ourselves against predators. Well, just like that, that's how the entire human race is. So that's his name, the Lord saves. What else do we know about him? Well, we don't know his extended family, but we do know that he was married and that he had two sons. We're going to read about that in our two-week study of Isaiah's Christmas, but what else do we know? Well, we know a bit about the times in which he lived. So let's read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
See, notice that Isaiah lives in the southern kingdom of Judah. He lives in Jerusalem. And according to his own testimony, he ministered during the reigns of four kings. Uzziah, the first one, begins to reign in Jerusalem in the year 783 B.C. And Hezekiah, who is the last of the four, ended his reign and died in the year 686 B.C. Now, Isaiah didn't start his ministry in the first year of Uzziah. In fact, as we're going to see tomorrow, he will receive his call to prophetic ministry in the very year that King Uzziah died. Now, that year was somewhere around 740 B.C., And we also don't have to assume that Isaiah lived until the death of Hezekiah. We do know that Hezekiah began to reign in the year 716 B.C. And we do, however, know that Isaiah's ministry was really important during the Assyrian siege of the city of Jerusalem, which began about 690 B.C. Isaiah prophesied for a period of over 50 years. That's a very long period of time. He saw four kings, as he said. He saw invading armies. He saw seismic events. He saw global empires rising, and he saw a very great struggle. So let's go back to the year that King Uzziah died. That was the year 740 BC. In those days, the kingdom of Judah was still basking in a very long and sustained period of economic prosperity. But the good times were about to come to an end. And what's more, many people were sensing that great changes were in the air. There was a crisis coming. And even then, that was beginning to form. The Assyrian Empire, coming from what we now know as the nation of Iraq, was on the rise. They were going to be a very powerful nation. And it was quite clear by now that they had their eyes on creating a very vast empire, and Judah lay in its path. And so in the days of Isaiah, everyone was starting to ask, what are we going to do? Do we need to form political alliances? What do we do about our own military capabilities? Can we buy off the invading armies? Are there treaties that we can now make to prepare for times to come? Isaiah's message was very simple. Only the Lord can save. This Christmas, join with us for a renewed vision for the season, a renewed passion to stand shoulder to shoulder in advancing the clear message of the gospel story. For us, a child is born. While December is the time of year that sets the tone for the new year of ministry ahead, Your gifts ensure the gospel message is heard across the nation. So whether you're a long-standing partner in ministry or you've recently been impacted by any of the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada, could we ask you to stand with us this month in our effort to raise $465,000 by December 31st? Your gift, among other committed ministry partners across Canada, will sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry into 2020. Please consider sending your gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. You know what an idol is? You know, most of you think of a stone or a wooden statue, maybe an engraving in stone or some form of a figure to which people pray. And in truth, that's what idols are. But idols are so much more than that. 
And furthermore, Isaiah, that is, the book of Isaiah, is full of depictions of idols. Let's give some examples. Isaiah 2 verse 8 says, Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Well, whatever we think of idols, Isaiah is very clear that idols are the things that human beings have made. That is, they are the work of our own abilities, our own strength, our our own craftsmanship. But Isaiah has so much more to say about idols. He not only says that they are the things that our own hands have made, but he also says that they are the objects of our worship. Notice he says, they bow down to the work of their hands. In essence, then, idolatry is so much more than worshiping a statue or an image. In actual fact, it's worshiping our own abilities. It's the idea that we are, in effect, worshiping ourselves. Now, let's go to another idol passage in the book of Isaiah, and this one is found in Isaiah 44, verses 9 to 11. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. That is, in the day of trouble, the things your own hands have made and the things that you worship, well, they're not going to be able to rescue you. You can't save you. You might even get a copy of the idols of Assyria, of all the nations around you, but when the day of disaster lies at hand, you will find no salvation there. If you trust them, you're going to be humiliated. Now, I think it's very important to just stop here and consider how relevant this message is for us. I mean, think of the things that we, who who live in Western democracies, have come to trust. We believe that our economy is going to save us, for the free enterprise system is always going to endure. And furthermore, we've been able to harness the forces of nature, and we become masters of science. And with this, we've multiplied our technology to safeguard us in the day of trouble. But truth be told, those of us who live with these idols are feeling increasingly vulnerable. Like the days of Isaiah, we have an uneasy sense that the storm clouds are on the horizon. I mean, for one, our culture is beginning to fray at the edges, and the unity we once thought we had in our values, well, that's starting to break apart, and in its place is an increasing clash of values and an alienation from one another. Can we hold this thing together? And furthermore, we're beginning to see that alternatives to Western democracies have now formed on the horizon, alternatives that will not quickly go away. And still, furthermore, more and more are starting to wonder if our technology is adversely affecting the environment. Well, what then? Isaiah would say, oh, I know what you want. You want salvation. You want your idols to save you from the darkness that you see all around you, but it's not going to do. In the day of crisis, your idols will stand silently by, unable to speak, unable to hear your cries for mercy, and unable to act on your behalf. You're going to pray to your idols in that day. You're going to say to them, deliver me, for you are my God. But how foolish to pray to the work of your own hands. You're going to be ashamed. Instead, Isaiah would say, as recorded in Isaiah 40, verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. See, only Yahweh of Israel can save. 
Clearly you need a savior, but you're calling out in the wrong direction. Ah, but what has all that to do with Christmas? Well, much in every way. For one, the book of Isaiah, it's filled with promises of the anointed one, or the the Hebrew word is Mashiach, Messiah. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah chapters 52 to 53. I mean, all these passages point to the coming one who is not only the Messiah, but he's the only Savior. When men and women refuse to look to Yahweh for salvation, still in in great mercy, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is going to send his Savior into this dark world. Just a few examples. Isaiah 42 verse 1 begins by saying, Behold my servant whom I uphold, in whom my soul delights. And then just a few verses later in verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. See, that's the hope in Isaiah. A great Savior is going to come, not because men and women are asking God for one. No, it's not that at all. We're lost. We don't even know that our idols are crumbling in our own hands. No, a great Savior will come because it is the Lord's will to do exactly that. He will be gracious to a lost people. But let's get back to Isaiah, the the man whose name reminds us that the Lord saves. We begin with chapter 1, verse 1. Remember it? The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I notice that Isaiah does not say, this book is about the visions, that is, plural, visions, I saw during a period of over 50 years. Rather, he says, this book is a summary of the one vision that I saw over a long period of time. Let me contrast the word vision with another word. It's the word perspective. You know, in our day, we hear the word perspective, well, all the time. You know, from my perspective, says one analyst, this is what the stock market is going to do. From my perspective, we're not going to have a recession for some time. Or, from my perspective, we're ready to have a recession right now. See, it all depends, says the experts, on how you interpret the data and how you view the data from your own vantage point. Well, of course, saying things that way, well, that's humble. Uh, What we're really saying is that no human being can have, you know, a complete objective picture of market forces to properly predict them. But we do have perspectives, perspectives that will help us predict the future and thus be able to anticipate the coming trends. Perspective, an analysis of data with the best tools of research that we have available to us. I want to contrast that to the idea of a vision. Second Kings chapter 6, during the time of the prophet Elisha, the king of Syria had surrounded the city of Dothan, That's the city where Elisha was staying. They were going to capture Elisha himself. And Elisha's servant is alarmed. We're in a lot of trouble, he says. This looks like the end, and I'm terrified. Now let's read 2 Kings 6, verses 16 to 17. This is Elisha's response to his servant's terror. He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Ah, yes. If we only had our eyes open to see what's truly going on. And that's what a vision from the Lord actually is. It's more than perspective. It's seeing the world as it really is. It's seeing the world in the light of the reality of God. 
It sees sin, and it recognizes human helplessness. But all this is seen against the backdrop of the greatest of all realities, God. That's it. That's the greatest of all realities. And so for over 50 years, Isaiah saw his world from the prism of the reality of God. And this is what he saw. And again, what does that to do with Christmas? Everything. As we will see, Isaiah sees the world as living in the reality of the shadow of death. Yeah, you heard me. The entire world is hovering right now on the precipice of an abyss. Death lies before us, and it's dark. So we can't see when we cross the precipice and when we plunge into the abyss. And our idols are silent and impotent, even while we cry to them for mercy. Hence, says Isaiah, in this world of gloom and darkness, suddenly, unexpectedly, a great light from God shone forth. That's what the birth of Jesus is. And that's the vision that Isaiah saw. And so from Isaiah, we see that the birth of Jesus is not the story of the birth of the founder of Christianity, a new religion that would sweep the earth. No, no. Isaiah doesn't share that perspective. This birth is a great light shining in the valley of the shadow of death. This is Yahweh's salvation. This is the Lord's life raft to a drowning humanity. This is God's compassionate response to a people who look only to the work of their own hands to save them. Isaiah, the Lord's salvation. God, the great rescuer. For the next two weeks, let's retrace the story of Isaiah 6 to 12 and see a vision, a vision of what it means for a savior to be given to us. John, I think, you know, it's interesting to consider that, you know, in this time of year, Christmas, there's so many lights, there's so much celebration, all these things going on. And yet, you know, in Isaiah's time and in the birth of Christ, there's so much darkness in the world. Yeah, I love the symbolism, Ben, that, you know, for us in the Northern Hemisphere, Christmas comes in that dark, dark time of the year, and we put out the lights to celebrate the fact that there is light in the darkness. And I I love that because that is a picture of uh, what God has brought to us when Christ was born in a manger. Uh, We live in this incredibly dark world, morally dark, spiritually dark. And in the middle of all of this, God has begun to speak and a great light has begun to shine. That's Christmas. That's the, the heart of the message. That's why we celebrate. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our Christmas series right here in Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld provides regular, insightful interviews with Christian leaders into some of the most provocative and current issues of the Christian life. How would the Bible have us live, think, even respond to issues that ultimately define who we are as God's people? How should we act and respond to the world around us or live uniquely within the church? Join Dr. John Newfeld for these unique and intimate conversations that ultimately provide biblical insight for living as we strive to live as people of faith. Never miss an episode or check out past episodes by visiting and subscribing to our YouTube channel at Back to the Bible Canada. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And please consider offering a gift this month to support our critical year-end campaign. Call 1-800-663-2425 
or donate online at backtothebible.ca.